Genesis chapter 21 is where we'll be this morning, but once you get there, if you would hold your finger there and then turn over to Psalm 103. Psalm 103 is where I want to start this morning. And I simply want us to begin by reading this psalm of praise and thanksgiving for the steadfast grace and faithfulness of God toward His people. Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He, makes known, he made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. For He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Truly the Lord God Almighty is most gracious and faithful, is he not? And what the psalmist writes about here in Psalm 103 is a truth that is on full display in our text for today, Genesis chapter 21. So if you would turn back there now and follow along as I read this text. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, and God had, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? 
Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. The thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about a distance of a bow shot, for she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy, and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert in the bow. with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because both of, the, both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. We've been working our way through a study of the middle chapters of Genesis, chapters 12 through 36. And these chapters cover the life of Abraham and of Isaac 
and of Jacob, who are the patriarchs of Israel, the ones who were set apart unto God by God's grace alone, who were called to walk with him by faith. And these are the ones through whom God had promised to bless all the nations of the earth, ultimately through the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we've been studying these chapters and looking at the life of Abraham in particular, along the way, I have tried to emphasize for you the character of God that is revealed in each of these accounts. The practical lessons on faith that we learn that are taught by the example of Abraham's own life and his triumphs and failures, these are important. But the main emphasis, the fundamental focus of these chapters is not the behavior of men, but the character of God. We are meant to see first and foremost who God is, what he does, how he works, and how he is at work in the lives of his people. And then, and only then, can we appropriately understand and apply the lessons of faith that we learn from their practical examples. Well, all of that is included in chapter 21 of Genesis, the text that we're looking at this morning. Genesis 21 is a grand display of God's grace and faithfulness throughout the world, in every life, and in spite of man's failures, weaknesses, and struggles. And I simply want to work through this passage this morning and look at four crucial aspects of God's grace and faithfulness that are on display in this text for our encouragement, for our instruction. We're going to look at the God who keeps his promises. We're going to look at the God who is purposeful in pain and the God who is gracious or generous in his pity and gracious in his provision. Those points aren't original with me, but I've been thinking about them a lot this week. And I want to work them in to be a blessing to you today. So I want us to see, first of all, from this passage, the God who is faithful in his promises. Or the God who demonstrates his grace and faithfulness by keeping his promises. Not everybody who makes a promise keeps it. You've broken promises before. I have broken promises before. Never once in the history of the earth, nor in the history of eternity, has God ever broken a promise. We see this in verses 1 through 7, in the account of the birth of Isaac. This, This is a magnificent moment. We have been waiting for this moment in our context now for uh, eight chapters, nine chapters. In Abraham's context, he has been waiting for this moment for 25 years. And it is a magnificent moment. And it's not just a magnificent moment in the lives of Abraham and Sarah. It is a magnificent moment in the entire story of redemption history. The promised son is finally born. The line is continued toward the Savior. 
And in the midst of staggeringly impossible circumstances, think about it. Abraham is 100 years old. Moses was kind not to give the age of Sarah. She's 90. And had never at this point, before this point, been able to bear children. They had been waiting 25 years from the moment God made this promise in chapter 12. There were many circumstances, many troubling circumstances, many foolish decisions along the way that threatened to defeat God's plan and promise. And all of it has now culminated in the birth of the child at exactly the time God said, in exactly the way God said he would fulfill it. And so we read in verse 1, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Don't miss the repetition of the Lord's name there. This is Yahweh, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. He is the one who made this happen. He is the one who initiated the covenant with Abraham. He is the one who made the promises. Abraham wasn't asking for it. God made the promise. It is God who has kept him alive and preserved him all the way to this moment. And it is God who makes sure that this baby is born in exactly the way he promised. This God is the exalted and sovereign Lord of heaven and earth who is near to his people and who sets his love and favor on them through no merit of their own. That's who is visiting Sarah. That's who is making this promise come to pass. What had he promised? Well, to put it concisely from what we saw in chapters 12 and 15 and 17, God had promised that Abraham and Sarah would have a son. And not only that, but that from this son would come a long line of descendants who would possess the land that God had promised, that God had set apart for them. And this this line of descendants would then become a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And that wasn't just a promise for a physical land and for a physical temporal blessing, but it was pointing ultimately through this prom- to this promise that through this line, God would bring the Messiah who would bring salvation to the ends of the earth. It was a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, ultimately. This is a grand promise. You can't think this stuff up. This is a promise that exceeds all human imagination. And what makes this point so powerful is that not only is the end game impossible, but the very first step of the promise was impossible. Sarah couldn't have children. And not only that, but she was beyond the years of having children, even if she had been able to have children before. The promise of a son born to Abraham and Sarah is utterly impossible in human terms. And yet here she is in verse 2. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age and at, at the time of which God had spoken to him. God had kept his promise. And it's not just that God found a way against all the odds to navigate all the threats and to figure out a way to scrounge it together and hold it together and ultimately bring it together in the end. No, that's not it at all. He fulfilled his promise to them in exactly the way he said they would. The way he said that he would. That's the way God is. 
there is no threat to his plan that is ever really a threat to his plan. There is no obstacle in the way of his people that is ever really an obstacle for his people. It is simply a tool that is in his hand, his sovereign hand, to bring his plan from point A to point B to point C to point D all the way home. So, in verses 3 through 5, Abraham obeys the Lord's instructions. He names his son Isaac, which means he laughs. Referring back to Abraham's and Sarah's response when the Lord announced this child. And then he circumcises him on the eighth day according to the law that God had given to him to that point. Then in verses 6 through 7, the rejoicing begins. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. In other words, they're no longer laughing at me. They're laughing with me. We rejoice. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Think of the joy. You ladies who have had children, you can understand this more than the rest of us can, right? The joy longing for this child, longing for a child her entire adult life, then receiving the promise of God and thinking it's impossible and now seeing the fulfillment, the joy that she is experiencing. What to man seemed laughably impossible is now joyfully fulfilled. And it was no hard thing for God. And what's more, as with all of the promises from God that we see in Scripture, the impossible beginning of God's promise at this point, the birth of Isaac, is meant to teach us something about the preservation and ultimate fulfillment of everything God has promised. That God would overcome such an impossibility on the front end of His promise is meant to be an assurance to his people that he will overcome every impossibility with every promise that he has made to the very end. The line of descendants that God is establishing here through this impossible beginning, though persecuted and sinful, will be preserved by God through it all. And what's more, in the fulfillment of God's impossible promise here, the plan of eternal salvation that God has decreed from eternity past is once again showing itself to be invincible against all odds, against all attacks. And by this, God's people are given assurance by God himself that the salvation that he has begun, he will bring to its full completion and perfection. And this is where what we see happening in this chapter becomes very close to home for us, very relevant for us, because this is what God is like, not just then, but forever. This God has made wonderful and precious promises to us. They're all throughout Scripture. He has made promises that are beyond our comprehension, beyond what we could ask or think, promises of reconciliation to God Himself, of deliverance from every effect and, and influence of sin, he has promised the certainty of a home that He is preparing for us even now and that He will return to take us to be with Himself. And He has given us the assurance and promise of a glorified eternal life at peace with God forever where we will experience His unspeakable pleasures forevermore. 
And I am sure of this, the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 1.6, that he who began that good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Turn over to Romans chapter 8. You need to see this with your own eyes. Romans chapter 8, where the Apostle Paul describes not only the beginning of our salvation, but the end of our salvation as well. In Romans 8, starting in verse 28, he says, And we know that for those who love God, most things work together for good. No, all things. Abraham, your age. Sarah, your age. The waiting. Abraham, your stupid decision to try to have a son through Hagar instead of Sarah. All of these things have not thwarted God's plan, but have worked together. And that is applied to us as well. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those That is God's good for His eternal plan. Not our comfort, but His eternal good that He has promised to us. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, that's eternity past, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. That's now. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. That's the future. So verse 31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, and He is. Who can be against us? And this is the Christian's great hope. Just as it was with Abraham and Sarah, that against all human odds and in the face of all opposition and through the greatest difficulties and struggles and even in spite of all of our weaknesses and failures, God is a gracious God and He is faithful and He keeps every detail of every promise. Listen, Christian, I don't care what sin you committed yesterday. God hasn't thrown you away. And I don't care how your life has been wrecked by your own foolish choices or by the sinful behavior of somebody else in your past. You have not been cast off by God any more than Sarah had. Because God is faithful. And He is so faithful and He is so gracious that even your foolish choices in the past, even the sinful effects that you are feeling today from whatever it is somebody else did to you in the past, those are simply meant to be the steps along the way for God to accomplish His perfect purpose in you. Your hope is as strong today as it has ever been because God is a gracious and faithful God. And that brings us now to verses 8 through 13. We see not only that this God is faithful in promises, but He is also purposeful in pain. This is a God who demonstrates His grace and faithfulness in His sovereign purpose through man's pain. We move on in the story and we read in verse 8 that the child, that is Isaac, grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. In that culture, the time of a child's weaning was uh, somewhere around three years of age. Okay? 
Uh, and so from, verses seven to, from verse 7 to verse 8, we skip ahead a few years. Uh, Isaac is now around three years old, somewhere in there. And on this occasion, which marks a specific milestone in Isaac's growth, we, we parents love to mark milestones, don't you? I do. All right, we've got, we've got two doors in our house with little lines going up, and we celebrate as many occasions as we can. Parents, you ought to do that. You ought to savor and treasure every moment with your children, not just when they're kids. Abraham recognizes this as an opportunity for celebration, a festive opportunity to celebrate the growth of the boy and to remember God's amazing grace and to commemorate what God has done in their lives. But the joy of this occasion was very quickly interrupted, we read. There was strife that was lingering under the surface between Sarah and Hagar. If you don't know why, Look back at chapter 16 and you'll find out why. Hagar had become a rival and her son was a rival. In verses 9 and 10 we read, but Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian. By the way, notice that this is Ishmael, but he's never named in the passage. You almost get the sense with Ishmael that he's like Esau. He's being sort of moved out of the picture. He's being passed over for the blessing, and yet God is still going to take care of him. Verse 9, Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she bore to, to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son. The son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son. You can sort of pick up on the, the viciousness in Sarah's speech here. Cast this slave woman out. Now, this is the servant girl, probably given by Pharaoh to Abraham back in chapter 12, who Sarah gave to Abraham to have a child with, thinking that's how God was going to fulfill his promise. The son's name was Ishmael. We read about that in chapter 16. By this time in the passage, he would be about 16 or 17 years old. And it appears that at the celebration for Isaac, Sarah saw this child, Ishmael, laughing. Now, what's so wrong with that? It's a celebration after all. Why is Sarah so upset? Well, certainly there would be some sort of rivalry that I expect might have made it hard for Sarah to see them having a good time at all. But I think there's more than that going on here. The word for laughing that is used here can have the idea of a playful, joyful laughing as we see with Sarah back in chapter or in verse 6. But it can also have the idea of mockery and ridicule. And most commentators agree that the context and the emphasis here favors the idea that Ishmael is in some way mocking and ridiculing the boy. And Galatians 4 helps us out with that by actually saying Ishmael persecuted the boy, in some way. And now Sarah sees it, and that is enough for the scorn for Hagar and for her resentment of, this, of, of Ishmael and the, and the rivalry in the home to now come to the surface and now to call on Abraham not to shut them up, but to send them away entirely. And I think it's important to notice Sarah is not really acting nobly here. 
She is apparently letting something that has stewed below the surface for a while now bubble over. But we also need to understand that Ishmael is not acting nobly either. And I suspect, though it's not said so, Hagar probably had something to do with it too. They're not innocent parties in the strife of this passage. We need to remember that. But in any case, in verse 11, we read that this was very displeasing to Abraham on the account of his son. Abraham, understandably so, does not like hearing what Sarah just said. And I'm expecting that there was some sort of argument between them. Culturally, what Sarah was demanding was illegal, even in that sinful place. But even worse, it was callously inhumane to send this single mom with her teenage son to wander around in the desert, which is what they were doing. And while Ishmael is not the promised covenant son, he is still the son of Abraham. Dads, what would you think? Abraham, understandably, has no inclination to impose such a death sentence on his own boy. Think of his grief. Think of the pain and the anguish of his heart in this moment. But then look at this. Verses 12 and 13, God speaks up. God comes to give some direction to Abraham, and he says, Be not displeased because of the boy, because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. He wasn't justifying it. He was saying, this is my plan. Do, do what she's saying. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named, and I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So God tells him to do what, he said, what Sarah says, and then he comforts him with the promise. I'm going to take care of him. He's going to be okay. He's going to become a nation too. That doesn't lessen the pain that the father would feel in having to send his boy away like this. But it does give hope. It does give assurance that God is still at work, even in the painful experiences. And that is an important lesson for us to learn here. Remember where Ishmael came from. Remember that he was born because of a failure of faith on the part of Abraham and Sarah. They took matters into their own hands because they grew impatient with God's promise and His timing, and as a result, they made a grievous mess of everything. And for some 17 years now, they have had to bear the consequences of that and endure the strife. And now it is a painful situation that it, when it is being sorted out, and God is saying, I am going to sort this out, but it is still painful. I heard one preacher put it this way, that sometimes when God is graciously leading us out of the mess we create, there is no painless way out. It always hurts. And we need to understand, beloved, as you navigate through the, the sins of your own life and the consequences that you've had to bear in your own spiritual growth that we all face, that repentance and restoration are often painful. Don't come to God thinking that he's going to make your life easier because it doesn't always happen. The roots of sin and its effects grow very deep and they reach many people and they touch many aspects of our lives. 
And sometimes repentance and restoration means broken relationships. Sometimes it means bearing certain consequences and making certain difficult decisions regarding our habits and our way of life that are going to stick with us forever. And they're hard. They're painful. But in the midst of the pain, our hope is not that our life will be easy, but that God is in control and he is sovereignly at work to make things right. Our purpose is not to make everything smooth again or to go back to the way things were. We may never be able to do that. But our purpose is to submit to God's gracious and loving chiseling in our lives and to trust that where he is leading us through the pain is good. Furthermore, think about God's purpose in the pain this way. God is preserving his promise to bring him descendants through Isaac by removing the threat. God was using it to protect the covenant child and the covenant promise, and he was doing it in a way that showed grace to everybody involved, though it was still painful. The line of Ishmael from the very beginning has always been a threat to the promised line of Isaac, even to this day. But God has sovereignly protected from the very beginning, as he does with all of his people. And what we see here is a demonstration of God's purposes in the midst of man's suffering. The reality that God is up to something much bigger than what we see with our limited perspective and what we experience in our present moments. That is what we are seeing here. Turn over to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, we'll see a New Testament explanation of this. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul writes this in verses 16 through 18. 2 Corinthians 4, 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, that's how Paul views the pain of following Christ. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen, that that goal that God has for us is eternal. Look also over to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Peter writes it this way, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Beloved, do not lose heart. As painful as your life may be at this moment, or as painful as it may be tomorrow, God is at work, and God is gracious, and God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. These verses give us hope by showing us a God who is purposeful in the pain of his people. But let's move on. 
And let's not forget, let's not overlook Ishmael and Hagar here. As we come to verses 14 through 21, we see now, thirdly, the God who is generous in pity. The God who is generous in pity. In spite of the strife between Sarah and Hagar, and in spite of the mocking by Ishmael, and in spite of the fact that he is, they are not recipients of the covenant, God still shows pity on them. And he still shows kindness to these wanderers. So in verse 14, Abraham sends Hagar and Ishmael off with a few meager rations of food and water. I can't help but notice Sarah's not there. And I can't help but think, Abraham, one skin of water? Couldn't she give her two? But sure enough, there they go. And not long after we read in verse 15, when the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. She goes over, sits opposite him so she can't see him or hear him. She says, let me not look on the death of the child. This is a bad situation. They're dead. They are as good as dead in the desert. And she weeps. It seems all hope is gone. They've been cast out of their home. They've been cast out of the covenant family. They're wandering in the desert. Their provisions are gone. No food, no water, no map, no connections, nowhere to go, no hope. And then, once again, God speaks up. Verse 17, and God heard the voice of the boy. The angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Don't, don't, don't make that into something sarcastic. Hey, what's wrong? No, no. He is being compassionate. He's speaking to her in her need. Fear not, he says, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. You know what the word Ishmael means? God hears. And here God heard the voice of Ishmael and the cry of Hagar. And he doesn't just hear, but he shows compassion. He gives comfort. He makes a promise that Ishmael is going to be okay and he will become a nation. Now, this nation will not be a covenant nation. It will not receive God's special blessing as Israel did. They will be like the other nations of the world, receiving God's common grace. But the point is, Hagar, all hope is not lost. He will become a nation. He will be numbered with the other nations of the world to whom Isaac will be a blessing, to whom the gospel will be extended. Take heart, Hagar. I'm not going to just let you die in this wilderness. And then, verse 19, God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. I think it was there the whole time. She just couldn't see it, didn't know where she was, didn't know it was there. Now she sees it. And she went and filled the skin with water, gave it to the boy to drink. God was with the boy. He grew up. He lived in the wilderness. He became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness. His mother took him a wife from Egypt. And there they go. This is what we call common grace. And it refers to a general favor that God gives to all the world, even the lost, even those who are his outright enemies. Jesus teaches about this in his own ministry in Matthew 5, verse 45, when, he's, when he tells us that he makes this, his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Now, interestingly enough, when Jesus says those words, it's in the context of teaching his disciples to love their enemies. 
And I think that's a lesson we can learn here from this passage in Genesis. Very simply put, don't be like Sarah, be like God. Look at the compassion and the pity that God showed to the outcast and to the scoffer. This is what God is like. As one preacher put it, God is compassionate even toward the crabby agnostics. And that serves as an important lesson to us in how we respond to a world of unbelief around us. God is a compassionate God even toward the lost. and He is generous in pity. Now, finally, I want us to look very quickly at verses 22 through 34 and see the God who is gracious in provision. That is the God who shows His faithfulness and grace in providing for His people. These verses take us out of the story of Hagar and Ishmael, and they take us into, once again, a story with Abimelech, whom we met in the last chapter. Last time we saw Abimelech, in chapter 20, Abraham had made a fool of himself before Abimelech. He had passed Sarah off as his sister and allowed Sarah to be taken into Abimelech's harem. God stepped in and saved the day. But Abraham was once again humiliated. But by the time the story ends, they're on somewhat good terms. They part cordially. But here, Abimelech comes back to Abraham and seeks to make a treaty with him. The Lord has been good to you. He's favored you everywhere you go. I don't want to be a mark of your military prowess. Let's make a deal. And they make a treaty to ensure that they will deal kindly with each other, he says in verse 23. And after this, there arises a conflict about wells in Beersheba. And, and, and it's, it's, I don't know exactly what was going on there, if Abimelech really knew about it or not. But Abraham confronts him. They deal with the issue. They make a covenant to make sure they understand, this is where I'm going to live. And Abimelech makes it possible for Abraham to live peaceably in the area with the provisions that he needs. That's the point. And then Abraham plants this tree and calls the place Beersheba to signify the gracious provision of God and the treaty with Abimelech. Now, having looked at all of that, I want us to notice a key concluding detail. In verse 33, we're told Abraham called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. When names of God are given, pause and take note. What does it mean? There are two names for God here. Actually, three. One of them's hyphenated. Yahweh, that's Lord, and El Olam, everlasting God. The Jehovah, the mighty everlasting one. It's a fitting place to end this chapter. It speaks of God's covenant faithfulness to the world to his redemptive plan, and to his people. It reminds us that in spite of all the struggles, he is the everlasting God. He is the mighty God. He is the God who makes and keeps his covenant. He is our God, and he is most gracious and faithful. He is faithful in his promises. He is purposeful in our pain. He is generous in his pity, and he is gracious in his provision. So, what do you think of him today? Where do you stand 
with him today. I'm not asking what your circumstances are. They might be bad. But where is God in all of this? Are you at peace with this gracious and faithful, everlasting and mighty God? Are you resting in his sovereign care for you and his good purpose for your life? Are you content to walk with him even through the valley of the shadow of death? Do you simply trust that he is with you, guiding you, protecting you, and leading you safely to your eternal home? It's hard to remember that when we're in the midst of trials, isn't it? That's why we're told to look up. Don't look around. Look up. Because this is the God who is leading you through that valley. Christians, rest and rejoice in your gracious and faithful God today. Stand firm in your faith. Press on in your pursuit of Him and of His righteous character. Stop giving so much of your heart and so much of your time and so much of your energy to the world and to yourself. Live for Him with wholehearted devotion. It's interesting to look at Abraham. From this moment forward, I don't think we see him struggle again. And as painful as it was to watch him send Ishmael away, just wait for the pain of chapter 22. And he will deal with it magnificently. Why? Because Abraham is learning to look up. Abraham is learning who the God is that is calling him to walk through that valley. And if you're not a Christian today, if you have never come to a point of calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I urge you today, listen up. This is God. This is the God who created you. He is patient and he is generous in his pity toward you in this moment. But you are lost in your sin and you need to see that. And you need to understand that in sin, you will face his righteous judgment someday. And it will last forever in a place called the lake of fire. But there is an escape. There is a way of escape for you. And it is through the Lord Jesus Christ who is the ultimate son, the ultimate promised son of Abraham's line, who is the perfect God of heaven, who came to earth in the likeness of men to live a perfect life in our place and then to die a sinner's death in our place and then three days later to rise again in victory over sin and the grave so that anyone who believes in him as Savior and Lord will be saved. My friends, don't be cast out forever. Don't be exiled from the grace of God to wander in the wilderness on your own. Look to Jesus. Cry out to him for mercy and salvation. He is gracious. He is faithful. And he will save you. Let's pray.